55. It's good to be here this morning. Good to meet some new folks this morning and uh, see some old, older faces, not old in age, but just old because we've seen you before. And uh, we were back here in, in July of 2016, and uh, we're glad to be back here. And uh, my wife, Sarah, I would introduce you to her, but she's left the room. She'll be back. Uh, it's my wife, Sarah. Then we have TJ, Elise, and Vance. Now, the Warnick's having Elise. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So I remember that. And, uh, and so we're glad to be here with you this week. I'm glad my family lets me sing with them. Amen. And so we have a good time making a joyful noise to the Lord together. And, uh, and as you're turning to Psalm 85, just to give you a little bit of, of background. Sometimes I like to know who I'm preaching to. And, uh, and sometimes folks like to know who's preaching to them, okay? Uh, I'm from North Carolina, Charlotte, North Carolina, and my wife is from Chicago, Illinois. So I kid around and tell folks we have a cross-cultural marriage. <laughs> and we do. You know, I'm a country boy. I was raised in the city, but just some of the southern vernacular, the first year of our marriage, my wife was like, what did you just say? You know? And uh, sometimes it comes out. And uh, she's the best part of our ministry. She really is. Behind a good man, I'll tell you this, is a better woman. Yes. And, uh, and she is the backbone of our ministry. She is a blessing. And then our three kids, you know, they're growing up with us. They've grown up on the road most of their years. And, uh, and we're just servants of the Lord. We have a good time serving the Lord together. And uh, I wasn't born in a Christian home. I was born in a home where my mother was divorced before I was a year old. She remarried before I was two. She was divorced again when I was about six. And so that was kind of a, a pattern. And so we didn't grow up going to church at all. And uh, grew up in the city. My mom had two rules. I have a half-sister that's five years younger than me. She had two rules. Don't kill anybody and don't get thrown in jail. Well, those are pretty, pretty easy, you know. At least one of them was pretty easy anyway. And so, and so grew up in high school, public school, never attending church, never really hearing the gospel. When I was 17 years old, I had, uh, at that time in high school, three of my best friends were murdered on different occasions. And those were kind of the, those were the, kind of the friends that I had. And my mom would always tell me, hey, I'm worried about your friends. And uh, I always thought, what are you worried about? And so now I look back and I understand. And so when I was 17 years old, I was working at McDonald's full-time, working the front line behind the cash register, and I didn't have a ride to get me forth and back to work. So I would call my mom, and I called her one evening to come pick me up from work. And she said, hey, have you ever thought about joining the Army before? And that's kind of unusual. Most moms don't encourage their sons to join the military, but this was my mother's last-ditch effort for uh, to get me out of the environment that I was in. And so... I spent eight years in the artillery, serving in the Army, and I, I really enjoyed blowing stuff up and still do enjoy blowing stuff up. And uh, I don't know if I got anything else other than just blowing stuff up from the Army, but I like that. And, uh, and so I got out, got into commercial construction, building high-rises and hotels. The, the company I worked for, we did all the glass. So when you see those guys hanging out of the outside of those big, tall skyscrapers, we used to do that, and I loved it. I loved traveling over the, around the world, and I loved heights and being on the side of buildings. But when I was probably about 27, I really had an empty place in my heart. I never wanted to get married. Because I'd seen my mom go through four marriages, and it was just a wreck. And I said, if that's what marriage is all about, I don't want to have anything to do with it. I never wanted to get married, and uh, I didn't grow up going to church. I did believe in God. I believed, if you'd asked me, do you, do you believe in God? I would have said, absolutely, I believe in God. And, and so, but there was an empty place in my heart. 
And no matter how much money I made, you know, you think, boy, if I just make a little more money, I had a good job, making a lot of money. I bought my first house when I was 21 years old, had motorcycles, and I had my pickup truck. You know, every guy's got to have his pickup truck, you know, at least it used to be that way. And, and so I had life settled, man, and I started thinking to myself, what's next? More stuff? I mean, you've heard of the rat race of life before. I mean, you get to a certain level of achievement, and then what's next? What's next? And so I was questioning, what's next? More stuff? Bigger house, more expensive cars, and, and really is, it's a rat race, isn't it? And so I started to think to myself, this is just kind of, what's the purpose of life? Just to get more stuff, and I, I tried to read the Bible, and I would open it up, and I would try to read the Bible, and it didn't make a lick of sense to me. And, uh, and I just got frustrated with it, put it to the side, and, and uh, the Lord was really dealing in my heart, and I tried everything to try to fill that void. You know, the party lifestyle, making a lot of money, everything, but just empty on the inside, and one miracle happened that was life-changing. My sister called me up. She was living in Charlotte, North Carolina at the time. She was living uh, with a man that wasn't her husband. They worked together at Ruby Tuesdays, and uh, just, you know, we had a good relationship. And so she called me up. Uh, one evening, I was home from Miami, Florida. We were working on the Ritz-Carlton Hotel there. We took a break, came home for a little while. I was in Charlotte, and she said, hey, guess what happened to me this weekend? I said, what happened? She said, I got saved. Well, to be honest with you, I didn't know what she was talking about. And uh, you know what I said? I said, congratulations. What does that mean? You know? And so she said, well, my husband, my, my, Al, which was her, her, wasn't her husband. They were living together. He went to church, and he got saved on a Wednesday night. And uh, he took her back to church on Sunday. She heard the clear preaching of the gospel, the death, burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus for forgiveness of sins. And she trusted Christ as her Savior. And they were having a Bible study that Tuesday night. And she said, why don't you come to the Bible study? You can come and, and, uh, and I'll cook dinner. And my sister is an excellent cook. So she had me on the line right there. And, uh, but I knew that she had gotten saved, didn't know what it meant. I knew they were going to have a Bible study. I had been trying to read my Bible, but I couldn't understand it. So I thought, well, this be a great opportunity. And I went really with a critical mind, thinking that we're going to go to this Bible study and whoever's going to come over and lead this Bible study, and it's just going to be a mess, you know what I mean? And so we'll just shoot holes in all of his logic, and that was the mentality that I came with. But we had dinner that Tuesday night. The assistant pastor of the church, where they got saved in, came over to start their discipleship, and, uh, and he was just so gracious. He answered a lot of questions I had, you know, can a person be sure? I mean, when you leave from this life, and go into the next, can a person really be sure that they're going to heaven? You know, I would hope so. But you know what he did? He took the Bible. He began to go through Romans and show me that for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. Hey, he didn't have to convince me that I was a sinner, you know. I've lied. I've used, God, used God's name in vain, you know. Look with lust. Jesus said that's adultery in your heart already. If I've taken something that doesn't belong to me, I'm a thief. Hey, I've done all those things. Disrespectful to my mom and dad. When I measured myself up to the Ten Commandments, God's perfect law, I was guilty, and uh, nobody ever showed me that before. I'm thinking, man, I used to think I was a pretty good guy until I looked at the Ten Commandments, you know. I'm not keeping any of those and never really have. And so then he went on and talked about Romans chapter 6, for the wages of sin is death. You know, that's what you deserve. You deserve to die. And, and guess what? There's a new st statistic out on death. One out of one person dies, you know. And so uh, don't really mean to put a wet blanket on your life, but, hey, that's what we all have to look forward to. It's a result of our sin. We're guilty before God. For the way 
in his death. I thought to myself, I never heard that before. I'm 28 years old at this time, you know. And, and, uh, and then he, he shared the verse, continues on, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, if you just say, well, did you believe that? I believed it before I heard it. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross. I had heard about that. That's kind of ingrained into our American culture. Historically, I would have believed in that. But the key word there was gift. The wages of sin is death, but the gift. And I had never received the gift. And so about two or three weeks after that initial Bible study of hearing a clear presentation of the gospel, Christ dying for us, he's the only way, he's the way, the truth, and the life. He is resurrected, is sitting on the right hand of the Father. You know, I'm wrestling with this stuff in my mind. I'm going back to the scriptures that he shared with me. And two weeks later, in the same Bible study, two weeks later, I was on my way home uh, from that Bible study. It was 1 o'clock in the morning, Charlotte, North Carolina, and I bowed my head and trusted Christ in the cab of my pickup truck. And so did the lights go off, flashing, boom, 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 you know, it wasn't crazy. But I knew that I had put my faith and trust in Christ and his finished work alone. And if I'd have been in a truck wreck, a car wreck, I would have died and gone straight to heaven, not on my own merits, but on the merits of the Lord. And you know what? That changed my life. God called me to preach about the same time and went off to Bible college. That's where I met my wife. She wasn't training to be a preacher, but she's a pretty good preacher in her own right. And uh, we started our family before we graduated, and, and we're just serving the Lord. And so, hey, if you're here and you're not sure, you can be sure. And God wants you to be sure of eternity. You have to get that settled before you get anything else settled. God is a God of grace and mercy, and he's good. So that's kind of my back. So up in fundamental Christian churches. I didn't grow up hearing the Bible every day. I didn't grow up in that. But you know what? That's not an excuse. We have everything we need right here in this book if we'll just live it, obey it, and share it. And so that's kind of my testimony. And so I hope you have one too. Now we're in Psalm 85, verse number 1. Let's look with me. Psalm 85 and verse number 1. The scripture says, Lord, Thou hast been favorable unto thy land. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Isn't that good? Just to be reminded. Sometimes we need to be reminded what God saved us from. And sometimes we look down at our nose at the rest of the world and we say, God, I'm so glad I'm not like that person. But if it wasn't for the grace of God, who knows where we would be right now. That's right. And so it's good to be reminded. The psalmist looks back and says, Hey, thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Thou hast covered their sin. Thou hast taken away all thy wrath. Thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. You say, Would God judge my sin? Absolutely. And God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. And so the psalmist understood that. He says in verse number 4, Turn us, O God, of our salvation... And cause thine anger toward us to cease. Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations? And then he asks this question in verse number 6. Wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? Boy, you see the word revive right there. It's really one word made up of two words. You have re, which means to do again. 
and you had the word vive, which is really, we get it from our Latin word, vive, it means to, to live. And so essentially the psalmist is crying out, he's calling out to God and saying, God, would you not help us to do what? To live again. And that's what revival really is. You say, this week we're having a revival meeting, but what in the world is that? That's a point in time where we really commit our hearts to the Lord, and uh, we have a spiritual emphasis on prayer and Bible preaching and good fellowship, not just on Sunday and Sunday night, but Monday night and Tuesday and Wednesday, and just let God challenge our hearts because you know what? I believe in revival. I thank God for a pastor that believes in revival. You say, why is that so important? You know, if you study American history, and pastor was just in Washington, D.C., the Christian faith of America is written all over the walls of Washington, D.C. It's amazing, actually, if you go there. But you would say, well, America was born out of a rebellion. It wasn't. America was born out of a revival. You study the 20 or 30 years up to 1776, and you see what God was doing in the churches in early America. And America was born out of revival. And here's the question, do we want to live again? You say, well, I'm not dead. Well, sometimes we act like we are, even though we're not. And so the psalmist cries out, and I want you to understand there is a need and a potential for revival as much today as there ever has been in America. You say, this country is not the same country it was 30 or 40 years ago. You're right, it's not. But it was a mess 30 or 40 years ago, if you look back. It might not have been as much of a mess. And some would say, I can't even recognize this country because everything just goes so far gone to the left. And it's always been slipping off that way. But you have to understand this. The darker the climate gets in America, the brighter the Christian light ought to shine. And before we see a mighty work of redemption in America, people getting saved, there's going to have to be a mighty work of revival, and it's got to start in my heart. Gypsy Smith was an, an evangelist that traveled all over the country uh, many, many years ago, and he never did have a real formal education, so he would read the Bible, and when he would read the Bible and he would come to a word that he couldn't pronounce, he would just lift his head, make some comments, and he'd start reading again, and he'd skip that word, and nobody would know the difference, and so that was kind of the way he was, but God used him mightily in revivals all over the world, and it's amazing, and somebody asked him, they said, Gypsy, what's the secret to revival? He said, well, I'll tell you my secret. I go home and, and I draw a circle on the ground and I get inside that circle and I say, Lord, if there's going to be a revival, please start it right here in this circle. And that's where it's got to start, in your heart and in my heart. God wants you to live again. So is there the potential for revival? Absolutely, or the psalmist wouldn't have asked for it. Now take your Bibles from here. We're going to look around a little bit in the Scriptures this morning and learn about what revival really is and how it affects us. Take your Bibles from here and turn back to 2 Chronicles chapter 7 in verse 14. 2 Chronicles chapter 7 in verse 14. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, when you get there, 
uh, you have the time period of King Solomon. He is the third king of Israel. There was King Saul, then King David, who most of us would be familiar with King David, the giant killer and the psalmist of Israel. But then you have Solomon. Now, under David's rule, uh, the, the, the kingdom of Israel was expanded through military might. Under Solomon's rule, it was more of a political rule. And I'm telling you, the nation of Israel flourished under Solomon's rule. And when he became the leader of the nation of Israel, he built the temple of the Lord. It took him seven years. And he prays a prayer of dedication when he opens that temple. There's a dedication prayer. It's the longest prayer in the Bible in 1 Kings chapter number 8. And he prays that prayer. And 2 Chronicles chapter 7, God responds to that prayer. And you read in verse number 11... Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that came into Solomon's heart to make in the house of the Lord and his own house, and he prosperously effected. And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to myself for an house of sacrifice. You say, what is he talking about? He's talking about the temple that Solomon just finished. God put his stamp of approval on that, and he answered Solomon's prayer. And he says in verse 13, God is speaking, he says, If I shut up heaven, that there be no rain. By the way, do you know one of the ways that God is initially trying to get his people's attention? When he withholds provision. You say, that's kind of mean. Well, God does what he's got to do to get our attention. He's a loving God, and he's trying to correct us. And so, and so the very first thing he does to Israel, when Israel turns their heart from God to idols, he begins to withhold provision from them. And then he says there, and he says, If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, he says in verse 14, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And so a lot of us might be familiar with that passage. Maybe we've heard it before. And certainly it's a great revival text, but there's, it's great for a reason. And I call this the promise for revival. We saw the potential of it. Hey, there's potential for revival in America. And you know what this is? This is the promise for it. And notice how it starts. This is a recipe. You uh, ladies and some of you men, I like to cook. I was telling Pastor and Brother Jim before the service, we like to eat in our family. Uh, we, don't really, uh, we don't really splurge on a lot, but we just appreciate food. Food is art. Food is science. And we have this saying in our house, good food is good morale. And so food is good. And so every good dish has to have what? A recipe. a recipe. That's right. You got to have a recipe. And so if the recipe calls for two eggs and you put four in, it's not going to turn out the same. If the recipe calls for four cups of sugar and you'd only put two cups of sugar, you can't really expect the end product to be as good as you'd hope it to be. And so it's important. All the ingredients in a recipe are important. And so that's right, and it all comes out to work good. So notice the recipe for revival. It says, if my people, which are called by my name. You know who revival is for? It's for the Christian. It's for the Christian. And a lot of times, you know, we're in revival meetings and, and we're praying. You know, we've already been praying that we'll see some people saved and added to the church this week, and that's great. And when that happens, that's a shot in the arm. 
And that's encouraging. And by the way, if you know somebody that's not saved, a neighbor or a family member, I encourage you to challenge them to come this week. It's not going to be a waste of time. Wouldn't it be great for you to invite somebody to the service this week and they get saved and, boy, start growing in this church? God desires to do that, but we have to go after them. But this is the recipe. This is for God's people. Revival's for us. We get our hearts right with God, and, and boy, that begins to spill out into our family. And uh, then our hearts that are right with God, it spills out into our family, and then it spills out into our church. And then it spills out into our community and our workplace, and it starts like a fire. It starts small, and then it grows. And so revival, there's the recipe for it, but it's going to start with God's children. And so it's for us. If my people, which are called by my name, shall what? Humble themselves. You know the second ingredient in revival? It's not prayer. It's humility. You say, what's humility? That means being who you really are, not before me, but before God. God sees the heart. And I can fake you out, and I can put on a suit and a smile, and, and I can be living all right on the outside and be all messed up on the inside, and I might be able to pull the wool over your eyes, but I'll never be able to pull over God's eyes. And there'll be no revival in America. There'll be no revival in any church unless there's first humility. Let's just be transparent with the Lord. Let's just be honest with him. He's the one we're going to stand before and give an account one day. If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves. And I see, see billboards and, and, and bumper stickers all, all over the place that says, God bless America. Have you seen that before? And uh, I like that saying, I'm all for God blessing America. But can I tell you this? God cannot and will not bless America as long as America is legalizing sin. It's not going to happen. Every state that adopts the marijuana law, God's not going to bless that. Every state that puts forth the abortion law and upholds those, uh, God's not going to bless that. God's not going to bless when we call evil good and good evil. He's not going to bless that. And you know what? We're going to have to take down the walls of our American pride. There's got to be some humility. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. You know what that is? That's repentance. That's simply turning from what we know is wrong and turning to what we know is right. That's all it is. It's just turning from what we know is wrong, turning to what we know is right. Turn from their wicked ways. And then he says, then will I hear from heaven. And so this is the promise, the recipe for revival. And so is there potential for it? Absolutely. Do we need it in America? Absolutely. Can it happen? Absolutely. But we're going to have to do it God's way. And if we'll do it God's way, then God will show up for the, on behalf of his children and he'll send revival. So let's look at some practical applications, okay? Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 29. 2 Chronicles chapter number 29. Second Chronicles chapter number 29, you have really the history of a king named Hezekiah. And uh, what a tremendous king Hezekiah was. He comes on the heels of a very wicked king. It's almost like going from good conservative leadership 
to wicked, far left, uh, ungodly, God-denying leadership. And so they're going from bad uh, to good, essentially, here. And so Hezekiah steps on the scene in verse 29, in verse 1, uh, chapter 29 and verse 1. And Hezekiah began to reign when he was 5 and 20 years old, and he reigned 9 and 20 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And notice verse 2. And he did that which was what? Right in the sight of the Lord. In the sight of the Lord according to all that David, his father, had done. He, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Uh, if you study this time period in history, Ahaz, the king that was the wicked king, he shut up the house of the temple of the Lord. There was no emphasis on the house of God. And so for at least 32 years, the temple that Solomon had built had been closed up. No priests working in the temple, no sacrifices, no offering, no lamps, no, none of that stuff. No religious activity in the house of God for 32 years. Now, imagine if y'all did that to Calvary Chapel Baptist Church right here. Closed the doors this morning, walked out, and didn't come back for 32 years. What would it look like in here? It'd be a mess, wouldn't it? I mean, maybe some water damage, maybe just certainly dirt and filth, and certainly animals would probably get inside and have their way with the place. The place would be a mess. So you can imagine the temple closed for 32 years, and the Bible says in the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. You know what he was doing? He was taking the emphasis, the idolatrous emphasis that the nation of Israel had adopted. And you know what he's doing? He's changing that emphasis from materialism and idolatry, and he's putting it back where? Upon God. Hey, if you study church history in America, so goes the churches, so goes the country. And so Hezekiah, he's putting the spiritual emphasis back on the house of the Lord. He says in verse number, uh, number 4, And he brought, brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them together into the east street. And he said unto them, Hear me, you Levites, sanctify now yourselves, and sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers, and carry forth the filthiness out of the holy place. You know what? This is very practical. Hezekiah, there's a revival spirit and a revival emphasis going on in his heart. It's starting to spread out into his rule and his leadership. And the first thing he does is he calls the Levites, those priests that serve the Lord, that are all the time working in the business of the Lord, in the ministry of the Lord. And he says, Levites, it's time to clean yourselves up. It's time to clean yourselves up and go into the house of the Lord and start cleaning it up and bring all the filthiness out of the holy place. You know what? The very first practical aspect of revival that it encourages us to remove all wickedness from our heart. He says, bring forth the wickedness out of what? The holy place. If you're here and you're a child of God, the moment you got saved, the Holy Spirit comes in and begins to take up residence where? In your heart. And by the way, when you got saved and the Holy Spirit came into your heart, you got all of the Holy Spirit that you're ever going to get. That's right. Now, he might not have all of you yet, but you got all of him. And so, and so here's the first practical aspect of revival. It encourages us to remove all wickedness. 
brings conviction. The Holy Spirit brings conviction sometimes. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. And so sometimes we open up the Bible. The Bible's like a mirror. It shows us our own heart. And I'm not the kind of preacher that's going to get up here and say, hey, you're doing wrong, you're doing wrong, you're doing wrong. Can I tell you, we all know if we're doing wrong. We know. But the emphasis is, if there's going to be life again, we're going to have to do right. We're just going to have to clean up the filthiness out of our hearts and just be transparent with the Lord and removal of all wickedness, okay? Second Chronicles chapter number 29 and verse number 6, he says, For our fathers have trespassed and done that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord our God and have forsaken him and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord and turned their backs. Boy, it's almost like he's writing America's autobiography, isn't it? Hey, we're writing it right now. You know, the way you live. And you look back a couple of generations before now, and there was more of an emphasis on the house of the Lord than there is now. There was a more of an emphasis on spirituality than, than there is that now. And you know what Hezekiah is saying? That's not an excuse. Our, father, our fathers might have messed up. Our fathers may have not have uh, feared the Lord. Our fathers may have not have fought the battles they should have fought. But that's not an excuse. We know better. And there needs to be a removal of all wicked wickedness. And then there needs to be a realigning of our priorities. I was reading in a church bulletin we found at a church in Blairsville, Georgia, in the mountains there. And it was from the 1970s or 80s. Somebody found a church bulletin in a Bible from a church down in Florida. And it said this. It was a Wednesday night bulletin, Pastor. And it said this. If God came back on Wednesday night, would he find you in the church service? Can I tell you, all across America, the least attended service in any local church is the midweek prayer service. It's just an indication where our priorities are. Now, I know some folks can't make it and some folks can't work, but you know what? Your prayer meeting and the midweek attendance of a local church is just as important as Sunday morning. And a church that does not pray is a church that will not have any power. And so you know what we need to do? Remove all wickedness, number one. Realign our priorities, number two. And hey, it's just human nature. We get things, I mean, I'm a goal-oriented person. How many of you are that way? I mean, you wake up in the day and you got your checklist. And sometimes, man, I'm so focused on getting my list knocked out of the way. And uh, I just kind of sometimes lose my priorities, you know. Uh, What's really the most important thing? Is the most important thing my goals or is the most important thing? God. And so that keeps us in check. So Hezekiah says, hey, you need to remove some wickedness. You need to realign your priorities, your spiritual priorities in your life. Now look at uh, first or Second Chronicles chapter 29 and verse number 30. These are all practical. What happens when revival comes? What's it look like? This is all practical, leading us, leading us in that direction, okay? Second Chronicles chapter nine, 29 and verse number 30. The scripture says there, uh, moreover, Hezekiah the king and the princes commanded the Levites to sing what? Praise. Praise. Psalm 100, the psalmist writes, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and enter into his courts with praise. praise. God likes to be praised. 
Sometimes we're so busy trying to rub our genie on the bottle to try to get something from God. He doesn't really want to give us anyway. And we're so selfish when we pray and we're not even taking time to thank God and praise him before we begin to be selfishly asking him for things that we want. And so here Hezekiah, he says, and commands the Levites to sing praise unto the Lord. And notice, with the words of what? David. The words of David. Now, what are the words of David? The Psalms. And Hezekiah is understanding the importance of the Scripture. And it's God-breathed and God-inspired. And, and he says, and sing praise unto the Lord with the words of David. Those are the psalm. And of Asaph the seer. And notice the Bible says, and they sang praise with, what's the next word? Gladness. Gladness. You know how we sing a lot of times? With gloominess. <laughs> Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm just glad I made it to church this morning. And oh, how I love Jesus. How I praise thee, precious Savior. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. But you know what? We sing the words, but we lose the essence, don't we? Yeah. And here they're kind of going through the motions, the Levites and Hezekiah says, don't do that. Remove the wickedness from the filthy place. Realign your priorities. We are going to focus on the spiritual, and we're going to do it with a rejoicing spirit. You say, well, I'm not a joyful person. Well, that can be changed. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote Philippians chapter number 4, Philippians is one of the most encouraging letters to a church that you can read. I mean, it's positive, it's encouraging, it's a blessing. And in Philippians chapter 4, in verse number 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And if you study it in the Greek, and I'm not a Greek scholar, but I paid for it in college, so I'm going to give you some of it. <laughs> rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. You know what that is? It's an imperative command. Amen. That's interesting. God commands us to rejoice and puts as much priority on our attitude than he does our repentance when it comes to sin. And so we need to make a choice to rejoice. And Hezekiah is saying, hey, when you sing, when you sing the Psalms, when you read, when you do all those things, do it with an attitude of gladness. And they sang with, praise, with praises and gladness, and they bowed their heads and worshipped. It's an attitude. So what's revival look like when it comes? Well, number one, we'll remove the wickedness out of our own heart. Number two, we'll realign our priorities. Number three, we'll rejoice even when it doesn't seem like it should be a rejoicing time. But you continue on in the same passage. Look at verse 36. He says, there. He says, and Hezekiah rejoiced in all the people that God had prepared the thing, uh, for the thing was done suddenly. You know what? When revival comes, sometimes it hits you like that. I've been in a meeting where... Another preacher's been preaching, and man, he's pouring his heart out to the Lord, and that prayer, that meeting's been bathed in prayer, and God meets with you in an amazing way, and it's unforgettable, really. And it just happens, man. You didn't get out of bed that morning thinking it was going to happen, but your heart's open to the Lord, and God begins to move and, and work in your heart, and it's just like Hezekiah here. The thing was done suddenly. Man, you really don't even expect it to happen. Sometimes God works out of our 
our framework of our, our mind and works outside of our box. And the thing was done set suddenly. Uh, you continue to read down. Look at verse number 1 of chapter 30. Hezekiah sent to all Israel and to Judah and wrote letters also unto Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover unto the Lord God of Israel. You say, well, what's important about that? Well, they haven't kept the Passover for a long time. For really a couple of decades, several decades, they've not been keeping the Passover. You say, well, what's the Passover? Well, that's where the nation of Israel was delivered out of the bondage of Egypt. God gave them specific instructions and said that they were to take a lamb, a male lamb, a lamb without blemish and without spot. It wouldn't be a speckled brown and white lamb or, or any other color. It was a pure, white, innocent, little male lamb, cute as a butt. And what were, what were they to do with that lamb? They were to take it, and Moses says very specifically, kill it. And it was a picture. Something innocent must die for something guilty. An innocent little lamb, they cut his throat, they bled the blood out into a bowl. They took that blood and they put it over the doorpost of their home and they did it perpetually year after year after year. When you come to Deuteronomy chapter number 6, God instructs the nation of Israel to take the law, the commandments, and also write them on the doorpost. And so it was a picture. After Deuteronomy chapter 6, every year that they would have the Passover, the law would be inscribed on the post of the door. Maybe six commandments on one side pertaining to our relationship with man and four commandments on the other side pertaining to our relationship with God. And, and boy, it was the law. But you know what the law does not provide? Grace. So it was a picture. They would take that blood, and they would put the blood over what? The doorpost, the doorpost which covered the law. The blood was the means of grace. And so it was a picture. This was something they were to do perpetually. It would point to the Lord Jesus Christ who would one day come and he who knew no sin was made to be sin for us and the law cannot provide grace but the blood of Jesus can. It's a tremendous picture of salvation and they forgot to do it. Maybe they didn't forget. Maybe they just chose not to do it for years and years and years. And the king, the Bible says in verse number 2, for the king had taken counsel and his princes and all the congregation in Jerusalem to keep the Passover in the second month, for they could not keep it at that time because the priests had not sanctified, them, sanctified themselves sufficiently. Neither had the people gathered themselves together to Jerusalem, and the thing pleased the king and all the congregation. So they established a decree to make proclamation throughout all Israel from Beersheba even to Dan that they should come to keep the Passover unto the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem, and notice it says, for they had not done it of a long time in such a sort as it was written. And so this is what happens when revival comes. We clean our hearts up. We put the priorities back on the right thing, on the spiritual and not the physical. We do it with a rejoicing attitude. But you know what we do? We renew the value of spiritual work and worship. You say, what do you mean? Hey, they're having a celebration, a Passover celebration. They haven't kept it for a long time, the Bible says. And you know what they're doing? They're putting a new regard on that celebration. So you can, you can apply it this way. The things that you used to do that maybe you're not doing as much anymore, well, start doing them again. 
You say, what do you mean? I'm talking about basics. I'm talking about the fundamentals. Hey, we're in March Madness right now, and I guarantee you the basketball team that goes all the way to the championship, one thing they're squared away on is the fundamentals, the basics. And that's what happens in revival. We start focusing on the basics. You know, we realign our priorities. We start reading the Bible. When we don't read the Bible, we had not read it in a long time. Well, hey, open it up and start reading it. Uh, start reading the Bible and just say, Lord, help me to obey what I read. And if you'll do that, man, your spiritual life will take off. I don't worry about any Christian that's reading their Bible. I, I worry about a lot of Christians that don't. And so if you hadn't done it for a long time, just start back up. Push the devil right off your back. You say, I don't really have a consistent prayer life. Well, start one. Start one immediately. It's not wrong to start. It's wrong to stop. But just get back on and start doing the things that you know you should do. You say, well, there was a time, preacher, where I used to work with a bus ministry or there was a time when I used to keep gospel tracts in my pocket, man, and look for opportunities to, to, to be a blessing and try to win people to Christ, at least give them the gospel, but I don't do it much anymore. Well, you know what? Start again. I mean, revival is very basic. It's not magical. I mean, it's miraculous. Sometimes what happens after a Christian is revived, it's not magical. It's absolutely practical. And so we start doing things that we stop doing. Uh, we renew our commitments and, and be faithful. But I want you to take your Bibles and look one more place. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. We'll finish here. 1 Kings chapter 8, we referred to it a little while ago. This is Solomon's prayer when he dedicates the temple initially to the Lord and he prays and he asks the Lord specifically. He says, Lord, if our people get their eyes off of you and uh, you begin to withhold provision from our country, Lord, would you forgive us? And really that's the crux of his prayer. You read it. It's the longest prayer in the whole Bible. But at least three times he mentions, Lord, if we, if we get out of line, if we get off our path, if we get our face in the wrong direction, Lord, would you forgive us? And so he prays that. And, and uh, he comes down to the end of his prayer in verse number 59, 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 59. And let these my words, wherewith I have made supplication before the Lord, be nigh unto the Lord our God day and night, that he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel at all times as the matter shall require. So he's finishing up his prayer and he says, Lord, this is my prayer. Lord, would you keep these words close to your heart? Lord, this is for your glory. Hey, Lord, this is for the glory of your people. You could apply it this way. Lord, this is for your glory, your people, the church here right now, today, the New Testament church. Lord, can you hear me and can you keep these words close? And then he says this in verse 60, that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is none else. You know what happens when New Testament Christians get revived? There's a renewed zeal for the unsaved. It is. Now, initially we said revival is for who? It's for us. But ultimately, you know what revival's for? It's for the whole world. Because I'm going to tell you what happens. You live in this world long enough, and we're all human. We all got burdens. We all... 
make bad decisions. We all have consequences. We all have times like that. And that light that's on the inside of us begins to get a little bit dim. And uh, maybe it's like looking at a lantern. Maybe some, some filth starts to collect on the lens on the outside of that lantern. The light's still there. It's just not as bright and not as effective as maybe it should be. And revival is like taking the cloth and wiping off the lens of the lamp. And you know what happens? The light begins to shine bright. Now, the light's not for us. The light's for the world. Ye are the light of the world. And when revival takes place, guess what? We'll reject wickedness. We'll clean up the filthy place, our hearts, if that's the case. We'll realign our priorities. And hey, if we can be in the services, if we can be faithful in our attendance and our giving, and I'm not talking about just this week. I'm talking about God's good enough for us to be faithful all the time to him and just be good to him. And so we realign our priorities. We refocus and we refire. We do it with the right attitude. We rejoice. And, and boy, we start doing things we hadn't done. Uh, we haven't done in a long time. And we do it. And you know what? When those things begin to work together, we have a renewed zeal for lost people. You start seeing this world for what it's really like. We look at this world and say, man, we live in the best country in the world, and I believe we do. There's only two countries in the whole world that have been founded on this book. One is Israel. Number two is the United States of America. And we think, man, we got it pretty good. But can I tell you, God's judgment comes swift. And in America, we need revival. It's going to start with us. Would you bow your heads with me?